0: I
1: didn't know
2: what was going on. All right, so a couple questions.
1: Will be
2: Yeah, this will pick it up. <laughs> this thing's high tech. So, questions I've always wanted to ask you. Where did your signature hat come from? Uh, many years ago,
1: they were standard uh, wear in the Florida Keys. And I went down there in 1964 to run the largest fishing tournament, the War over Miami. There were about maybe... 20 guides in the whole Florida Keys at that time in the 60s uh, there wasn't any flats boats south of Marathon uh, it was really a remote place and I ran this largest fish tournament and all the guides were wearing them and you know you can pull them down in the sun and they uh, I just got the habit of using them and I've been wearing them ever
2: since can you just have a closet full I got about a dozen left <laughs> and I figured 91 they'll last me yeah Yeah. All right, other questions. So I I hear you at all the shows, casting lessons or demos, but I never get to see them because I'm in a booth. You said that when you double haul, it doesn't speed up the line. My guess is that it just bends the rod. Can you explain the mechanics of a double haul?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, a double haul has several components to it, and most people think it's just pulling on the line. Prior to that, what you don't throw the cast how much you bend the rod when you stop, that propelled it. the unbending of the rod is what actually throws the line. It unrolls the line, it doesn't throw the line. Uh, and if people would think about casting uh, that like a tank track, if you only have thirty feet of line out and you false cast back and forth, you're only casting thirty feet of line. So the only thing that's moving forward is the wrong only of the of the line back and forth, like a tank track. What's under the tank ain't going nowhere. Okay. What makes the tank go forward is the unrolling of the tread. And so that's the unrolling of the line lets the line go. So the first thing you want to think about in casting is don't you don't throw fly line. You unroll it. So what you're trying to do is unroll the line, and the bigger the loop you make, the larger diameter of the thing, more later resistance, the more energy you're throwing around curves, and you gotta hold the loop up with something. So what throws the what makes the cast is how you unroll that line and bend the rod. And once the rod is bent and you come to a stop, whatever energy you stored in the bend is what unrolls the line. People think it's the throwing of your hand that does that. Um, if you want to do a, a real efficient cast you don't cast any harder at 10 feet and you do it 70 feet but it's uh, a technical thing not to get into but it's the tr- everybody tries to pound on it with their hand and that's not the way to do it anyway um, uh, I forgot what you asked me now <laughs> I was about double hauling the yeah. mechanics so of it so what, what makes the rod load is how fast and long you accelerate the rod with the rod hand that will bend the rod a certain amount. If you are going to do a double haul, what you should try to do is mimic or replicate with the left hand, the line hand exactly what you did with the rod hand. So the length of your acceleration with a on a double on a regular cast is let's say eighteen inches you should be hauling simultaneously at the same time exactly 18 inches so that the hand and the rod are both now bending the rod. You follow me? Yep. Okay. Now, at the end of the haul, so many people hands are far apart. One of the principles of fly casting, and there's four of them, but one of them is that God will not let you make a cast till you move the end of the line. So if you have... At the end of your cast and your double hauling, and your your hands are, say, two feet apart, you're going to have to move that rod so that those hands come together two feet. So most of a lot of a person's forward cast is getting rid of the slack in the line between his hands. In fact, that, if you don't double-haul and you stop with your hands far apart and then you come forward, that's how the line, it sags and catches up around the back end of the rod. So your hand should, if you don't haul, should travel with back and forth with the line. If you haul, the moment you finish your haul down with back cast, you should bring the rod right up again, right up to the hand, up to the reel, no slack. The second thing is that people at double haul, and you see this with young people on these videos and all, once they finish the the stroke in front of them, when the rod unloads or straightens, the lines are going to go in that direction. If you continue to haul, which so many people do, they'll haul all the way behind their back. You're pulling the tip of the rod down, and an indicator is there's a big sag in your cast. What caused the sag was you stopped the rod with the rod hand and continued to pull and brought the tip down. So you said to the tip throws some of this energy at the water, which is being wasted. And the third thing in the double haul is that uh, you want to make an extra cast, an extra effort catch. You want to pick up more line off the water. You want to cast in the wind. You want to make a longer distance. You never change the stroke with the rod hand. Your rod hand stroke should determine how fast you're going to, how long you're going to accelerate and smoothly accelerate to the stop. If you want to put more bend in a rod, you do it by changing the speed at which you haul. The faster you haul, the more bend you will put in a rod. And if you haven't ruined the stroke in front of you, then you're going to get a perfectly tight loop and get a longer distance or get more effort out of the cat. The biggest problem is that most people, once they want to make a longer cast or more effort. They're pounding on the rod at the same time they're pulling on the haul. So the haul is really a gear shift. But almost nobody thinks of it that.
2: Just that like do? Yeah, that works. Just like someone once told me it's like shifting car gears. You don't want to go you want to do like first gear to second gear and then let it go. There's no more that's more than fifth gear.
1: Yeah, and and the the point is that all the most important thing in fly casting i did a i was asked to help jack nicholas last year uh fine-tune his cast because a trout stream we we're going to fish was muddy and um jack was doing that at nine o'clock to two o'clock and back again and he's extremely well coordinated and so he said i heard you could fine-tune my casting and he's been Bone fishing from his own hundred and some foot boat for years, so he and his wife Barbara caught all kinds of fish, uh, and so he he was a, a very finished caster, but using that little short stroke, all, he was he was using a five weight and casting about fifty five feet of line, and I uh, he said to me, uh, what do you think of my casting, Lefty? And I said, well, it's okay, but inefficient and uh, efficiency
2: that's the key to casting
1: exactly and so what i I went down there and i'm i was 90 years old and and with no effort cast the whole fly line and he said well obviously i'm doing something wrong i mean he was real tickled what can i do and i said well you got to be more efficient he said great he a lot of i've worked for some of the biggest newspapers and a lot of the sports people don't want you to tell them anything, particularly if they're football or basketball players. It seems like uh, golf and baseball players have a different opinion on who they are and what they They'll are. listen a little more. Yeah. They're, they seem to be more gentle people, I'll put it. Anyway, uh, I went down and I was helping him with it, but What really turned the trick is when I explained the stroke, which is the most important thing in casting and violated by almost everybody. In a stroke itself, every stroke you make is, there's three parts to a stroke. There's a short stroke or a long stroke. That's one part. The second part is how fast did you start. And and then you have to smoothly accelerate to the stop. If, if you throw a frisbee, a fly fisherman does not make a power stroke at the end of throwing the frisbee. He smoothly makes a stroke. And the most efficient strokes are where they really accelerate the fastest right almost at the end. But it has to be smooth. If you stop the rod hard, it causes the tip to vibrate, which sends shock waves up and down, which steal energy from going forward. So a stroke... If you were going to, for example, you would hit a, you would bunt a baseball with the same stroke or hit a home run. You would putt a golf ball with the same stroke that you would make that first drive with, that long one. The only difference was, is that if you wanted to bunt and the stroke's going to go in the direction you want something to go. Whether you're throwing a frisbee, whether you're cutting a tree down with an axe, or whether you're throwing a baseball or hitting a tennis ball or throwing a spear. Incidentally, I've been to numerous times to the Amazon and the the outback of Australia and New Guinea and places like that. I have never seen a white man, a a native, cast like that, like we teach here and have for generations. I've never seen a native cast that way unless a white man taught him. He would throw a spear by pivoting his body and taking his arm back, and he would start Accelerating faster on the stroke, and then he would continue to go faster and faster and faster. Smoothly, he wouldn't make a power stroke at the end. He would have smoothly stop. You really—I uh, don't tell people to do this, but if you want to make the perfect stroke on casting, at the, as you stop the rod, the nanosecond or so before you stop, you slow down. You've already stored the energy in the rod now if you can smoothly stop it so there's no shock waves created you're going to get a very smooth cast that goes much further so i explained all this to, this about the stroke thing to uh, to jack and jack said hell i've been doing this wrong for years and within i'd say 20 minutes he was throwing the entire fly line it made 30 or 40 foot uh, and doing it easier, mm-hmm. uh, it it made that much difference. Just understanding the stroke. Most people don't understand strokes. People don't realize you cut a tree down with the same stroke you ch- you slice kindling. With it, if you want to cut the tree down, you take the axe and you you pivot your body. You got to pivot the body. We're, this the only sport in the world you don't pivot the body if you use your arm and your wrist is fly casting. Even in ping pong, you use the body. Even in pool, you shoot. You use the body. <laughs> Everything except fly casting. And we've been teaching this way for years, and I believe it's one of the two reasons why we don't have more fly fishermen is because we're teaching a method that requires muscle and, the, and it's, not as e, it's not easy to do. So the stroke thing is, so when, when you cut that tree down, you start with a pivot. The axe is going to travel as far as you can and you're going to start as fast as you can, but every part of that stroke from then on is going to go faster, faster, faster. One of the things that's a sure, and then when you want to split it, you would use a short stroke, and, and you stroke downward because you want to split the wood, and you wouldn't have to start very fast because you you don't need the energy. If, one of the great things about understanding that, if you ever hear anybody making a casting and going, swish, swish, They
2: started their stroke too fast. That's their muscles doing the work. not. Well,
1: what happens is they're swishing the rod through a long arc. What you really want to do is slowly bend the rod by pulling against the line. And the last 15 to 20 percent is where you really accelerate. Then you hear no noise at all and you'll create a tight loop. But if you start in the most fly fish when they get into the wind, start extra fast in the beginning and they end up with a big loop and a mess. If they would start slow, now the longer the cast, the faster you're going to start, but all casts after you start slow are going to go faster and faster and faster. You don't make any noise at all when you make a good pass, and the line goes flat,
2: and there's no shockwave. I think I'm going to have to listen to that two or three times once it's online. (laughs) All right, next question. So the lefty's deceiver, can you explain how the inspiration, the research and development, how long did it take for that fly to be where it is now? Um, People say, well, when did you develop the... uh,
1: You know, I've been tying flies since 1947, and there's probably about 10,000 of them I tied that never were worth a damn. Do I remember when I did it? No. I do remember why I did it, and I remember the approximate time, back in, in the 1950s, when I was living, I lived, born and raised in Maryland, we used to fish in Chesapeake Bay for striped bass. And there's a town called Crisfield on the eastern shore that had a crab packing plant. Now, you can't do this today, but in those days, what they would do is they had these crab pickers who would take the crab and pick all the meat out and put it in a can. Well, then they didn't, the rest of it they didn't use. So in the, at 5 o'clock when they quit work, they used snow shovels and they shoveled everything they didn't put into cans off the dock. So here was a gigantic chum line. And uh, hardly, nobody fly fished in. I mean, I only, I only know three people all fly fished in Chesapeake Bay at that time. When I started fishing in 19 early 50s fly casting uh, in Central Maryland, I didn't know a single person that was a fly fisherman at the time. So there weren't any fly fishermen, but there was a guy named Tom Gofield who was an outdoor editor of a, the, one of the big papers in Baltimore, and I was writing a column for a couple small newspapers. And we would fish together, and we went down there and when they dumped that stuff off at five o'clock. Hundreds of, we call them rockfish in Maryland, but striped bass. The hundreds of these rockfish would come in and would just tear the water apart. I mean, it, you roll a fly and it was like rolling a wine bottle in a jail cell. I mean, something was going to grab it. And so you would throw
2: in there. Well, all your flies in those days. Were... Sorry, Lefty, I am
1: told to make sure that you receive this shirt.
2: I feel like, it like it we're my duty. Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz in the East. <laughs> what, and who you? gave me this?
1: Um, well, Ed told me to make sure you get
2: it, but you get one for being here,
1: and no charge. No, something's wrong. Fed did that. No, <laughs> you're famous. <laughs>
2: you're famous. You're famous. But since I'm
1: on the bottom of the totem pole, they're like, if okay. you don't make sure he gets this, then I'm I'm canned. So you, I'll promise. Okay. You. Thank you. <laughs> what happened was that uh, all the flies in those days usually had a chenille body and either a feather or a bucktail wing. But the wing was tied in at the top, at the front. So what would happen quite often is that that soft wing would underwrap, underwrap the hook, and foul. And even though they were frantic and feeding on acre, acre chum, a fouled fly with a wing on it would be refused. So on the way home, we had, uh, it was almost a five-hour drive in those days. There wasn't any Bay Bridge. We had to go all the way up the eastern shore and around and come down. And I had a Model A Ford, so it was a good five-, six-hour trip. So we'd go down and stay two or three days and then come back. Anyway, we were coming home, and uh, uh, Tom and I, and I said to Cofield, I said, You know what? I'm gonna design a fly that won't foul, that has a bait fish shape, that you can make different lengths and sizes, and we're gonna try that. So I attached the tail at the back, which nobody did at that, I mean, of a wing or a streamer. They put them on dry flies and all, but they never put them on streamers. So I'm gonna put these feathers on the back end, and I'm gonna put a collar on the front to help shape the thing. And one of the things people don't realize about that collar on a deceiver is if you put it at the right place going back, and that's usually about where the bend of the hook just passed at, there's currents that'll come off of that tapered collar and sort of mini-eddy and work the tail more. So what uh, for a long time, I only used just pure white deceivers. And there are guys, there's one of the most legendary fly fishermen who just passed away in Australia, who probably caught as many fish on flies as anybody in Australia, never used anything but an all-white deceiver forever, just, made, just as varied as size. And I, uh, on the small ones, I would use calf tail, and on the larger ones, I would use a buck tail, but I would use uh, five or uh, either six or eight saddle hackles at the back and then put this collar right on the front, and it, when, when the water pushed on, it would feet, turn that down to be in the shape of a bait fish and you i've made i've used deceivers that uh, were inch and three quarters or two inches long for trout uh i probably caught 50 species over time of course i fish everywhere but i've probably caught 50 species on it and, and it works on and there are literally hundreds of patterns today that use the deceiver type thing yeah. and i never of course there's Somebody wrote a book with 700 pie patterns in it, and I think there were 26. De- there were Joe's Deceivers and Pete's Deceivers and John's Deceivers and so on. A lot of guys get upset about that. I never bothered about that. Hell, I'm just glad they were using the fly. It didn't bother me. Uh, but that, that's really how the whole thing got started. Incidentally, uh, they, had that, they had six flies on a, on a, in a
2: series on stamps. Did Morgan find you? Apparently he's got one of them.
1: Yeah, I signed that today. What got me was, uh, U- it's got U.S. on it, but it don't mean us. I got
2: to buy- I had to buy them same stamps myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were buying all this at Tochterman's, all the material? Yeah. No, um, Tochterman's didn't have very much tackle
1: in those days. Nobody did. There was only two tackle houses in the eastern United States uh, that had any amount of them. One was called Reed Tackle, which was in New Jersey, and uh, we used to make trips all the way up there to buy hackle. The other place was, um, oh, that guy was in northern Pennsylvania in Williamsport. Can't think of his name. I'm having, At 90-some years old, I'm having trouble with some names. There was a guy in, uh, in Williamsport, Pennsylvania that had, that was the only place you could really go and get hackles and, uh, and and, uh, and on dry flies in those days, the hackles were from next from India, and uh, saddles could be two inches long and in shaped like an arrowhead. <laughs> they there was no consistency. Uh, oh no, and, and they made, they went from fat to sometimes it's on one dry fly you might have to use three flies just I mean tie it on just yeah. to get the right length on the hackles when you're winding them. No, we'd, we'd, there were virtually no hackles in those days, or no materials. Can't believe how fly fishing has grown it, it, over the years. Uh, it, it, nowadays, so many people, and the equipment you use now is incredible. Stuff we work, I don't, how we even fish some of that. <laughs> in fact, uh, I got my first casting lesson from Joe Brooks, who was my mentor, very famous guy at that time. And uh, I remember he took me to Tochterman's to buy the rod and reel, and, which I donated recently to the American Museum of Fly Fishing. But he gave me a lesson and left town the next day. <clears throat> I don't know if that was a reason. <laughs> but he taught me that method of up to six o'clock, 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock and back to 10 o'clock and so on. And my main fishing at first was on the Potomac River and other rivers right near my home in central Maryland. And it was mainly smallmouth bass. And I had already learned that the longer you swam a lure through this, this was when spinning was just coming into the United States. Um, And we were using little tiny plug casting reels and I... Uh, I re- I realized that the longer you swam the lure, the more bass you caught. And we caught a lot of bass in those days. They're unpressured fish? Uh, unpressured. Not only that, the water wasn't polluted with all the problems being caused yeah. now. Uh, and um, uh, the, the plug tackle was clunky and big at that time. And so flies could be swam through longer periods of water at with realistic motion to them. And so I gradually began taking the rod back. And in 1965, I wrote an article for Outdoor Life that was illustrated by an artist friend of mine of taking the rod back behind 2 o'clock and taking it back low. And uh, they got hundreds of letters that just said that was just the worst thing you could possibly do. I remember uh, when I did the... Uh, Bob Clouser got to Clouser Minna. And uh, the way I got involved in it, Bob lives a little over an hour north of me in on the southern Pennsylvania. And we fished a lot. And, and I went up there one day with my son, and he had a fly shop on the, right there on the Susquehanna River. And Bill Skilton told me that uh, Bob used to be a butcher, he was a meat cutter. Meat cutter. He was a meat cutter. And he and I, well, he called me up. That this is he likes to tell this story. Um, he called me up and said, "I hear you're a smallmouth fit. I said, Yeah. Well, I had fished the Susquehanna from New York and Western Pennsylvania all the way down, but not that short stretch right below Harrisburg where he lived. And he said, "This place is loaded with bass." He said, "Won't you come up and fish with me?" Well, I love smallmouth better than anything else in fresh water. And um, he, uh, I went up, and he's. Muscular as any, wrestling them big beefs and everything. You know, he he was really strong. He was still a meat cutter, and uh, he like Clouser like to tell the story. Bob said we were out fishing a while, and he said to me, he said, uh, well, what do you think of my casting?" And I said, "Bob, have you ever looked at your back cast?" And he said, "No," and I said, "For God's sake, don't!" <clears throat> and he tells people that all the time. But he be- he really became a good caster. Well, what happened was. He worked for a small grocery chain that does this all over the United States now. They close all the small ones and make one big one. Uh, and so they closed the little one that Bob used to work at and a, a bunch of others in that general area and uh, he had lost his job. And he had started the small fly shop. And so I, um, I, I said, oh, why don't, he said, I can't make enough money at this. He said, but I'd like to stay in the fly fishing business. So I worked for the Baltimore Sun paper, which at that time was quarter million daily circulation, and I wrote three columns a week for it. And I said, we were out fishing on the, on the river. We were catching 50, 60, 70 bass a day. Uh, some of them weighed up 3 and a half, four pounds. We caught a lot of them, you know, 6 to 10 inches, but we, but you caught them. They were everywhere. And I said, "Well, why don't you take up guiding?" And he, he looked at me like it's guiding on the moon. He said, "Well, where would I guide?" And I said, "Right here." Oh, said, he said, "For what?" And I said, "Bass." He said, "Who would pay money to guide for bass?" I said, "A whole lot of people." Well, he said, uh, "He said, well, well, how would I? How would they know?" I said, "Well, I'll write a column about it." And and, and my column was read at that time all over the country, really, and so. I wrote a column and he called, and he said, he said uh, You think they'd pay $75 a day, which is what he was making me cutting? I said, Bobby, if you're going to charge $75 a day, I ain't going to write the column. And of course, this was a long time ago. And uh, he said, Well, how much would you charge? I said, $125. Well, his eyes flopped open. He couldn't believe that. He, first of all, didn't believe anybody would pay money to fish for bass because he'd been fishing them all his life for nothing. I wrote the column and he called me up and he said, I'm in trouble. I said, What's the matter? He said, I got all these people want to come up here to fish and I don't know how to guide. <laughs> I said, Well, you got to do some things. And we thought, First of all, I said, um, You got to, the guy's paying you, so you're in his employ for today. Number two, you got to bring lunch. And I said, Just tell them how to catch fish on the fly rod. You already know how to do that. So, this was long before the clouds were minted, by the way. So, anyway, he did and said, Because, okay, you got to come up. You got to be my client one day so I can figure out how to do this. So, I said, Well, don't forget, you got to bring lunch. So, he said, Okay, I'll bring lunch. Probably some kind of meat? Well, we went out and we fished them. And uh, now you got to realize, him and I have been fishing together for quite a few years by this time. I'm in the back of the boat, and with the motor on it, the back end of the boat is going to drift first on a river. It's a slow-moving river, big river. It's a quarter-mile, heck, a third of a mile wide, but it's slow-moving. And the thing was heading toward a rock. And Bob said, grab that pole. We're going to hit that rock. I said, just a minute, Clouser. You ain't going to tell the client to grab the pole. I said, you got to get this away from this rock. I said, none of that. You ain't supposed to be fishing. (laughs) Anyway, Tom came for lunch, and I said, okay, where's the lunch? And he proudly reached in the locker and pulled out this 25-pound paper sack, and I looked inside, and it was nothing but white grapes. He said he picked (laughs) up the wrong bag, but I ain't letting him (laughs) off the hook on that. Well, from that time on, Klauser had English crackers and cheese and watermelon balls and all that stuff, and he's a big kid, really, and... He had two places on this on the river where he would about a four-mile stretch where he would fish, and at both these places he had found a big maple tree that overhanged the river, and so he, and it was shallow. He would run his boat up under the shade of that when he ate lunch. Well, not too long after he started running up under the same maple tree, the, the catfish figured out when well when Clauser eats lunch, he throws the chicken bones and all over, so we eat too. And I've got pictures of him with putting a breasted chicken on a fork, <laughs> and, and I got catfish sticking their heads out of the water, pulling, a, pulling a breasted of chicken off. The, while Clouds are sitting there laughing. You know, he, he and I have been friends for many, many years—probably forty years or more. My that Clouds Ramina is uh, the way that thing happened. Is my son and I stopped up there one day, and and he uh, he handed me. I stopped at the fly shop with my son Larry, and he handed me a couple of flies that were just plain lead eyes. And um he, those are from Wapsie at the time. Yeah, in fact, I I did the first thing about lead eyes for for Wapsie Tom Schmuck, and the first year he sold a million, and he sold thirty three million last year, up total thirty three. Yeah, but anyway, uh, I um. Uh, uh, he, tanned these think that he had used the white hair and the brown hair from a deer hair from a deer tail, and the things were. He said, "Give these a try." I said, "I tried these things yesterday, and they worked good on the bass." well they were so damn ugly. I wasn't going to use them. I didn't tell him. Well, about midday, my son Larry said, "Dad, don't you think we ought to try these things?" I said, "Oh no, them things are so damn ugly." So he, well, I'd like to try one. Well, oh, go ahead. Well, he started catching bass like crazy. So I did too. So I went back that evening after we were done fishing, stopped by the shop on the way home, and said, Bobby, you really got something here, but it really needs some real improvement. I said, I think this thing will work for saltwater as well freshwater. So his son, Bobby, and him and I uh, worked on that pattern for about six or eight months. And then and I was taking it all over the place. I was going to New Guinea with it in South black, America, black bass. and South America, all kind of stuff. I was catching and, and everything. I caught 20 different species in New Guinea on the first trip I'd never seen before. And, and I caught not all of them, but most of them were caught on a, with the a clouser as well as other flies. Anyway. Um, uh, I wrote an article about it, the first article. In fact, I named it. Bob said, I said, what are you going to call it? He said, I oh, don't know. I said, well, Bob, it ought to have your name in it. And I said, uh, how about call, we'll call it a Clouser Deep Minnow Because nobody was using lead eyes at that time. So I wrote the article for Fry Fishman called Clouser Deep Minna. And of course, after a while, they took the deep out. And after a while, they took the mini off. And about... Four years later, I guess it was Bob and I were out one day, and he said, "How many species have you caught on this?" And I'm one of the guys that I never under world records. I don't wear patches. Uh, you, I don't do any of that stuff, and I don't keep records on all this stuff or anything. I never did. I just I always enjoyed fishing. I'm worried about the rest of it. So he got a pencil and paper out, and at that time I had caught 37 species of fish. But, but you know, I was fishing everywhere. And this is counting the bluegill and a, uh, all little species, species. pickerels and largemouth bass, northern pike stuff. So, Bob said, "Would you do me a favor?" And I said, "What?" He said, "Well, would you just—I don't have know how number just or big, just every time you catch a new species." would you mark it down so I'd do that when I'd come home I'd mark down and uh, here about three years ago uh, Jay Nichols an editor came to me and said have you caught over a hundred different species on a fly rod I would have never known had have the list. except I had this list and I'd caught 96 different species on, on Bob's Clouser and uh, of course I'd caught them on popping bugs and I'd caught them on deceivers and all kind of stuff So, uh, I think I came out with 116 species, but Jay wanted to, said, write about uh, at least 103 or 4 species that you caught, and then we'll call out two or three of them. Uh, He said, but I don't want you to write how to catch them. I want you to write something like, what happened when you caught a certain species? Um, I'll just give you one example, and then I'm going to shut up, but... Uh, in 1961, I went to the Turnoff Islands, which are 30 miles off of East Shoreline. And on the tip of that island, a guy who had been run out of Cuba when when Castro took over, had put a fishing camp there. It was that the first year he had it there. This was 1961, and uh, they had a little guy there, a native called Philip. And Philip was, uh, and I were sitting there talking. The, at the end of the first day of fishing, and he said, "What would you like to catch when you're here?" And there were all kind of there were bonefish everywhere, but they were small. And I said, "You know, I never caught a really big snook." I said, "I've caught them up to about a yard long, but not much. Anything bigger than that?" And I said, that's "Pretty uh, big." Yeah, but
2: yeah, I thought it was
1: there. at the time. And he said, "Well, I know where some big snook are, but we have to get out there right after dawn." So I was willing. I was young, and so. The next morning, we got up before daylight, drank some coffee, and he took me down along the edge of an island and I caught a 42 and a half inch snook, which is still the biggest snook I ever caught. Well, that particular the, the book's called 101 Fish, about 101 Fish. This is about snook, but not how to catch them. So I left that, that after my week there, I left and went home, and the next spring I came back and Philip was still working there. Now, he was the one that helped me catch the snook so he told me a wonderful story uh, about the fall after I had left I left in, in late late spring and he, that fall he and his son they didn't have motorized boats and they had sailboats so they sailed out there to commercial fish to the Turtle islands and while they're out there 30 miles offshore, shore they didn't realize it until too late a hurricane was coming so that turnip islands is mostly mangroves standing up on shallow flats. It, there's not, not many real islands there to speak of. Anyway, um, uh, Philip realized that they couldn't make it back. So he and his son, and his son was just a little boy at that time, he ran up into one of those mangrove creeks and tied his sailboat up. And because those mangrove, those turnoff are almost at sea level, When the storm surge came, it sunk the boat, and he held his little kid in arms from water up to his chest for a long time until finally the ocean went down. Now, this is about somebody that caught a snook, so it's not how to catch snook. And this is the type of thing that's in there. And uh, so uh, when when the water got down, it took them four days to get the sail repaired and the boat refloated and to get back to Belize City. So they pulled up to the police city dock, tied up to boat the fourth day. They'd been gone for four days. And they're walking up the street to their house. When here came a funeral procession with his wife at the head of it for him and his boy, and she fainted right in the middle of the street. <laughs> and it's about airplane crashes and all kind of crap that happened. It was easy to write because you didn't... you just the only thing I had to do is go to that Wikipedia and find
2: out how to pronounce or spell some of them names. Yeah. So how did? So you had the Deceiver and Bob had the Clouser. Where did the half and half? Did you just put on some berry White? Bob with those actually came together? up with the idea. Yeah. He said, "You know what?
1: These two flies are catching more fish than any others. Why don't we combine them? And we we messed around. You go leaving? No. Yeah. Sit down. You want anything? Nope.
2: I got my water. Yeah. Snack or something. Huh? I'm going to get a snack. It's a candy bar over there calling my name, I think. The Kit Kats pretty good. It's not too often I get a Kit Kat at my mall. The, the
1: Kit Kats over there?
2: Yeah, you want one of those? Yeah, I like All them right. thing. you ain't got too, it. They're not too sweet. As long as you uh, tell your buddy to better not stop making these colors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yvonne Sennard, make, gives it, every time we do one of these trips, I've known Yvonne for probably 40 years. Uh, We've heard first met in Christmas Island. I, I used to take groups all over the world for Frontiers International, and, and Yvonne and I, we fished two days together, wading out there, and then we fished in other places, and uh, he really is the toughest man I've ever met, really uh, but a great guy, real Still quiet. working hard in the tin shed. What's that? He's still working in the tin shed. He's, he really, is really the toughest man... I've only known him one time to use a raincoat. You know, we made a bunch of television shows together, and him and I broke all and Keaton
2: yeah. and crazy Huey Lewis and other people. Kim just had a uh, backstage with Huey Lewis a couple... What's that? Kim was just at the Huey Lewis show. She was backstage. Apparently, he oh, took her hat. Oh, she wrote me, yeah. She, he took her hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, He, she told me, so she had another one. she wanted me to sign. Huey's great. Well... Tom Brokaw called me one time. We, you know, we do those things to raise money for tarpon and bonefish research. It's called Bonefish Tarpon Trust, and uh, they're fly fishing shows. And one time Michael Keaton couldn't make it, and Brokaw called and said, uh, "Michael can't make it. We're going to bring Huey Lewis." Well, I was in the mid 80s at the time. I never heard of Huey Lewis, and so I said, "Huey Lewis? Who is Huey Lewis?" And he said, "Well, he's a he's a rock star." And I said, "I ain't going." Good
2: Lord! The cake's mine, Lefty. Don't touch. it. <laughs> Did you want these two? No, I'm good right now. So I'm a fat kid on the inside. I just telling him about uh, Huey Lewis.
1: Uh, you know, we do this television show, yeah. and he's with us. I never heard of Huey Lewis, and Michael Keaton was tied up in some kind of movie he was doing, and uh, Tom Brokaw called and said, Lefty, we, Michael can't make this one, so we're going to bring Huey Lewis. And I said, Well, who's Huey Lewis? And he said, He's a rock star. I said, Tom, I ain't going. He said, why not? I said, my idea of a hippie is a guy named Jack that looks like a Jill and smells like a John. <laughs>
2: You've never seen Back to the
1: Future, LFT? You've never seen that movie? No, I don't look at all of no, them things. So, um, so, anyway, um, um, Tom said, uh, no, no, no. He said, Huey's really a neat guy. So he told me, he said, he really is. Re-. And when I went with trepidation, but, but Huey Lewis had a regular haircut and turned out to be really one really neat guy Uh, and and he was a typical trout fisherman they're all uh, i don't know if you know that but bro owns about a mile and a half they're on west boulder right he owns west boulder you know ira and i went out there and fished probably we probably told me about their property yeah well then michael (laughs) keaton owns the next about a half mile and then tom mcgwain the writer owns the next half mile and then Huey owns uh, trout water not far from there, so they all know each other. And uh, so
2: Huey really is a lot of fun. He really is. Love.: is, is it fun when someone like Tom Brokaw is in awe with you? you know someone that everybody oh, knows like Oh when you don't put that crap on there.: oh, I heard it last night. <laughs> yeah, he was just make, doing it for the crowd.: He' just doing that for the crowd. Oh. So Lefty, you're talking about New Guinea.
1: Yeah, they've got all kind of species. Um, the strongest fish I've ever known is called a black snapper, or used to be called a black new, black bass, black New Guinea, New Guinea black bass. Got big fang teeth. It's in the same family as, um, what's the name of that, the, the Kubera snapper. It's got them fang teeth and everything, and um, we had made some films in the outback of Australia, and... We now were making, going to make it one in New Guinea. This was in 1983, and um, the Australia. I'd been with them for two weeks, and they played tricks on you like you wouldn't believe. You got to get with the program or you won't survive. So they were playing all these tricks on me, and in the outback, and they told me we're going over this New Guinea black bass. And they said it is the most ferocious, bad thing in the... And it lives in the rivers down near the ocean where the water's bracketed. And they were went on and on describing how ferocious it was and everything. And, and they said, we call it the River Rambo, <laughs> which I thought was great, you know. But I thought it was all a bunch of crap. <clears throat> so uh, we get over there and they... Uh, we flew into that little Port Moresby town, which is the only big oh, no, no. town there.
2: Everyone has machine guns.
1: Yeah, and you better have one too. And, and then, then we went they went in a helicopter and they had cut a hole out in the jungle and put some shacks up and, with coconut fronds on them. And there were natives down there with bows in their, bones in their nose and hair, feathers in their hair. and looked by the front as an alarm clock. <clears throat> And we come down, we drop down on these guys. And uh, so Rod Harrison was the leading fishing writer over there with my best friend. He organized this whole thing. So uh, he goes in and he gets out two spools about this big around a 40 and 50 pound test line. And two reels about that big, look like like trolling reels. And said, how about help me put some line on here? I said, what do you want to use that for? He said, for the River Rambos. He said, you need this on there. I thought this is a bunch of bull digger, you know. So I put a twenty pound test on my sailfish rod, and I never had any problem with a big fish. I'm tuning all kind of stuff, you know. So we and we put that on, and we go out in the boat the next day, and he's got these two reels loaded with forty and fifty pound, but there ain't nothing else in there except. Oh, and he had some rappellas about that big, and he took all the hooks off and threw them away. I said, "What's wrong with them?" He said, "They're not strong enough." To put extra hard, extra strong hooks on. I really thought they'd been playing so many tricks. I just figured, you know, they're gonna just set me up. Well, we get down to the first, and what to do? This, this the new Guinea bass will lay down in a tree that fell over the bank, and then they dart out and grab something and dart right back so, under is the a tree. Yeah, it's a river mouse That's where it's still brackish. We're, it's part salt, part fresh, right near the river mound. That's why they call them River Rambos. But they dread out, and then they immediately go back under the tree. So we get to the first tree, and we pull up, and uh, Rick uh, and uh, Rod Harrison says, Okay, have a go. Well, I look around, and he's got them heavy hook things on them lures, and he's not got any light tackle at all. They're
0: right there. And
1: I said, Well, I'm not ready. You have a go. He said, No. I ain't," I said, he said. "You got to go." I said, "I ain't going till you go. <clears throat> I want to see what's going on." So he throwed this forty-pound line with his trip back in this big tree, and this big green thing run out and grabbed it. He set the hook. This is one of the strongest men I've ever seen. I mean, he had arms like this. He was built like a tank. Real about five foot ten, and almost square with muscle. They called him the tiny giant down there. He sets the hook on this thing. And pop 40-pound test line like you wouldn't believe. Well, I'm getting that 20-pound crap off of my rod. <laughs> I'm getting that spool of 40 out of there, you know. So we go to the next one, and I still ain't ready. And he hooked that one with 50, and we couldn't break it. Uh, and he didn't have anything to cut it with. Eventually, we got it broke. But it, So we didn't get either one of these fish. So now we go to the next fish. And now I got my... I got 40-pound test right off the fly line down to a big deceiver on a 5-0 hook with a weed guard, and I threw. Look, the cameras are rolling, and I threw this fly back and made about three strips, and this big green thing run out and grabbed it, started back, and I just sat down on him like you would on a tarpon or a tuna, and tighten up the line, and he burned a white friction groove across my hand. In the film, you can see this white thing where he just burned it and went right back in a tree. Well, it lost him. So I, he said, look, we got to catch one of on them fly. We only know one or two guys that ever did this, and we need this on film. So I said, well, let's try something else. Next tree, I throw another big deceiver in there, and when he ran out and grabbed it, I wrapped the line three times around the reel, <laughs> and he, the motor was in neutral. I said, hit it, Dean, and Dean Butler backed this back this damn fish out in the open water and the thing about it if you can fight them for two minutes they give up but it's the damnedest two minutes you ever had on a fishing rod and that one only weighed 22 or 28 pounds i forget but that and i caught one a little bit later a little bigger but that that's the most the most strongest fish i've ever had into in my life i think there's only maybe a dozen or so i've been caught on fly rods
2: are there fisheries that still have yet to be developed? New Guinea's not developed. Yeah, lots of New
1: Guinea. One of the bad things about New Guinea, though, is uh, back in the, in the mid-'90s, the Japanese went down there. And they, you know, it can rain for three hours, and the river's clear. They got that much muck on the forest floor. It, and the rivers don't even hardly come up. But they got monster trees. And the Japs came in there and and, uh, made a deal with the government that they would put up schools and roads and stuff if they'd let them take the timber. Well, they didn't. They do it. They were doing it until they got the timber, then they left with unused roads and half-built buildings. And it there's a lot of Eastern New Guinea today, Papua New Guinea, that is very unfriendly to people. Um, Western New Guinea is still okay, but. uh, I uh, caught 20 species on the first trip I was telling Snow White. It's, it's unbelievable
0: fishing. Can, can I ask you a casting question? Um, <laughs> what do you, what, what's the best advice for a person who taught himself how to cast at 10 years old and never really had a lesson or any advice until 10 or 15 years later, became very proficient, so I've got horrible technique, and but but... I've fished so many thousands of hours that I think it would be very hard to fix. And when, I, when I'm when i out with a guide, he'll give me some pointers and stuff, um, but I immediately go back to my creature comfort style of casting. At this point, you know, you've got DVDs, you can go on YouTube. Aside from going to a casting school for a week where they're going to, like, videotape you, how do I correct bad habits at this age?
1: The first thing I, do, I would never go... To an instructor who's a trout fisher, because he, there is no one way to cast. There is no one way to cast, and here's what there are three things that determine every cast you're ever going to make, with a plug rod, spinner rod, surf rod, or a fly rod. The first one, fly fishing particularly, is that um, how are you built? A person with big long arms and a lot of muscle. Is not going to cast like little Kim Smith's. She's a little tiny thing with a little or short arms. So you're going to have to adjust your casting to the way you're built. What's wrong with what's been wrong with casting for many years is, first of all, the instructor teaches you the way the instructor casts. And if he's as big and strong as you are, and you're teaching a, a 12-year-old boy or girl. They can't cast like you. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that's an antiquated... The method we've been using is antiquated. We were talking earlier. There is no other sport that you just use your wrist and your hand, arm. You can't think of one. If you shoot pool, you move your body. If you throw a Frisbee, you move your body. If you play ping pong, you move your body. And we don't move our body. So those are... So every trout fisherman... Is up and down, little short things that don't weigh anything. So if you learn that, you're not going to be able to go anywhere else and cast. You're not going to be able to steelhead fish, bass bug, Atlantic salmon, saltwater. The, ser- the second thing that determines how you're going to make the- this cast, not all cats but this individual cast, how you built number one, number two to tackle. You're not going to cast a dry fly the same way you are a lead core shooting head. You're not going to cast a four-weight trout rod the same way you would one for striped bass that's a 10-weight. So the tackle tells you how you're going to do this. And the third thing are the fishing conditions. You're not going to cast in the wind the same way you would on a calm day. So there is no one way to cast. And back in the 70s, I realized that Everything has principles. For many years, I taught photographers, Nikon, Leica, and and was L.L. Bean's photo consultant. And I realized eventually that there are three principles to taking a photograph. How you expose, which is pretty easy now with all the electronics. But how you you expose, how you compose. In other words, how you frame it or that. And how you use the light. Those are the three things that control every photograph you ever take. And I realized there were four things, that, four principles that um, b- vary, that determine everything you do in fly casting. And the first one is the simple, is you've got to move the end of the line before you can make a cast. Uh, another one is that the line's going to go in the direction of tip stops. So if you drop the rod at the end of every cast, you've already told, let throw some of this line down at the water. So I would... I would go to somebody that teaches principles. Um, if you really want to learn, and I couldn't sell hacksaws in a prison. I ain't trying to sell you nothing. But um, Ed Javrowski and I just spent three and a half years doing a four-hour video. That's, I, I think it's $40 if you get it on the Internet, or it's $50 if you get the the... You know, I never heard of Blu-ray. I, me and Ed met this thing, and they sent each of us a, a first copy to make sure they were all right. I put that blue thing in my DVD. computer, and the damn thing wouldn't work. And I said, we spent three and a half years, and you can't even play it. And I had to buy one of them damn things, extra because my iPad don't, or my Mac don't have a one of them slots for it. But um, it's four hours, and the first three chapters are about principles. There are two other chapters you should read if you ever get it first, and one of them is that um, called the critical angle. And we Ed, Ed Jaworski taught uh, classical Roman and Greek law for forty years, so he really is a brilliant guy. And I got a high school education. The mix of common sense and, and high school education, and we had access to all these engineers and scientists. That that critical angle is that, it. The more you have a right angle, you know, like you stop at what 12:30 or one o'clock, you can only load the tip of the rod before you're up up to where you got to go. The longer you bring the rod back, the lower the angle. Long, the lower the angle. This is all well illustrated in there. So we don't cast any harder 20 feet and we do it 70 because we use the critical angle. And the other thing is that we found out that all tailing loops are caused by one thing. And, and it's very well illustrated with high-speed photography and, and uh, sequential illustration. I would buy that tape. And that, will, that applies to everything, every cast you ever make, whether you're fishing for Atlantic sailfish or you're picking for bluegills. It applies. You look at these four principles. If you have a problem, the principles tell you what the problem is. Thank
0: you. I'll do that.
1: Yeah. I ain't trying to sell you one of them, but oh, no, I, I don't get it. nothing from it anyway. Uh, you
0: know what? Here, here's one last question. Uh, my, fi- my favorite crab cakes are at my buddy's place on O'Donnell Street right off 95. Where's your favorite crabs in Baltimore?
1: I don't eat them damn things. No.
0: <laughs> I don't. I'm,
1: I grew up in the, the Depression Except 29th Depression, and we lived on welfare food, very plain. I don't eat no seasoning except salt and pepper. And um, every time I go down to Texas, the Mexicans done ruined them Texans down there. They got I don't eat four. I won't eat up with more than four colors. <laughs>
2: so I'm I'm the worst guy to ask about food. <laughs> so back to Brokaw, Have you been back to the battlefields in Europe where you fought? No, uh, how old were you when, when you were over in Europe?
1: I was uh, when I was in the Battle of Bald I was nineteen. Oh my god. I went over there I went in the army when I was seventeen. Wow.
2: And uh, was that by kind of just choice how you grew up? It was Yeah, a we way all out, wanted to a go. Job. Everybody wanted to go in the army. There were a lot
1: of kids that live when they were 15, 16, got in, some of them were found out and brought back. They did have five I think it was five guys in the Navy all got killed and they made her all that uh, a couple people in the same family can't be in the same outfit anymore. Wow. But the, it was a different world. Uh, the other thing is, and I don't mean anything about you all, but somebody interviewed me today or said, um, and I lived in a small town where everybody knew. You might not know their name, but you knew their face. Yeah, yeah. It was only a couple thousand people. They said, well, when you came back from World War II, how many people had all them problems, you got them acronyms. I said, Nobody. Um, we grew up with so little and with so much poverty and uh, almost nobody. I only knew one man in my whole town that owned his house in those days. We all worked for one or two families that owned this little town and somebody worked a little, it's like a feudal system. And I, just everybody I think was tougher
2: than. Me. What they are today, really? Any words of wisdom, and then I'll think, I think we gotta go. Any about? last words of wisdom? No, I ain't got no wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've
1: started enough on me already. Thanks, like,
2: don't way. run with scissors. Anything? <laughs> <laughs> no. Don't put keep your scissors in your hand when you fly tie. Uh, barbed or barbless?
1: What should we be fishing? Uh, most of the fl- flies I've used since the late '50s have been barbless. One thing interesting about that, you talk about wisdom. Is uh, when they make a barb, they have soft wire that comes through a hole and it's got like a little hatchet that hits it. And just like you hit an axe against a tree and set the tree up, that's the way they make the hook, the barb. And if you look at most barbs, if the hook's of any size where you can look at them, you'll find that under the barb it's all flat. That's where the the hatchet, or it's an ad really that goes in and cut that metal. It's soft at that time. Metal, then they they then sharpen it and forge it and do all the things they're going to do to make their final hook. Well, metallurgists have told me that uh, where that uh, adze went in and they made that cut to raise that barb up, that's the weakest point on a, fl- on a fl- hook. So if you take a pair of pliers at right angles and press it right down on there particularly with trout hooks many times they break and the point falls off so what you want to prevent that if you put the pliers in so that they go in point first right and the, and the pliers extend beyond along the shank on top and bottom of the barb and extend beyond the barb and you crimp it you'll never break one of those hooks off that's, that's wisdom right there yeah.
2: All we'll right. Help these guys get some Yeah, stuff. all right, Lefty. I, I need to out of here. Yeah, let me come get up. All right. I just want to <laughs> grab a hug real quick. Oh, sure. <laughs> right. Thank you for the time.